John chapter 18 through 19, we're going to start at verse 38, second half, 38b, and then we are going to go through uh, 19.7, and I'm going to start by reading the passage, and then we're going, to, we're going to dive right in. So after Pilate says to him, what is truth? When he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. They began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him and said, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. How many of you have suffered or are maybe suffering or struggling with a deep-seated guilt? Maybe not a, not, a, not a guilt of getting angry at the person driving in front of you or a guilt of slipping up and saying the wrong thing, but a guilt from something terrible that you did. Maybe you only know about it. Or maybe something that you did affected someone in a way that has changed them forever. How do you deal with that guilt? How do we as Christians deal with the guilt of our sins on a daily basis when Satan begins to throw that in our face? Or do we deal with it? A recent study was done from the University of Toronto that published in 2006 that See, not too recent, but suggests that people experience a powerful urge to wash themselves when suffering from a guilty conscience. It is known as the Macbeth effect, and it refers to the Shakespeare's famous play in which one of the main characters screaming and crying out as she tries to scrub away a blood stain that does, does not exist but only is imagined in her mind. In order to study this effect, the researchers asked volunteers to think about immoral acts that they had committed in the past. Shoplifting, betraying a friend, and so on and so on. The volunteers were then offered an opportunity to wash their hands According to the result, those who had retraced their sins jumped at the offer 
at twice the rate of the study subjects who had not imagined past transgressions. Interestingly enough, the act of washing actually did relieve the guilt of many volunteers, although temporarily. How do you deal with guilt? How does God view us if we are in Christ Jesus? What do we do about all those hurts and wrongs that we have caused others and will cause to others as we live here on earth? Guilt can cause stress, anxiety, hopelessness, and despair. It can paralyze people. So how do you live with it? Or do we? Did you notice throughout this passage, there's a refrain that is repeated three times. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. The first time that refrain is used, it is used with the release of who? Of Barabbas. And I want to say to you today, folks... No matter what you have done in the past, no matter what you are going to do in the future, the guilt that you suffer from, the guilt of your sin, the guilt of your offenses against others, and the guilt of your offense against God primarily is taken care of by what Jesus does on the cross. As a matter of fact, God finds no guilt in us when we are found in Jesus Christ. That very pronouncement, I find no guilt in him, is then pronounced upon those who place their faith in the one who took their place. Barabbas is guilty. Barabbas stands condemned. Barabbas is then freed by who? Jesus Christ. Jesus bore the penalty of our sin, the guilt of our sin in his body through his suffering and death on the cross. No matter what you've done, God does not declare you as guilty. And you don't need to carry that burden with you throughout your life because Jesus Christ has carried it for you. But we also see that this freedom that we have, this release from our guilt, from our sin, and from our shame, came at a great, great cost, didn't it? We see two factors, two factors of how this is possible, and how, or why this is possible, and how it was done. The first factor is Jesus could take the guilt of our sin, the punishment thereof, because he was perfectly human, verses 1 through 5. So Pilate then took Jesus and he scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you. So that you know, I find no guilt in him. 
Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. There was another study done. Same thing. How do people deal with guilt? Except this study actually showed that people's feelings of guilt are lessened after they experience pain. Volunteers were asked or think to write about a a short essay about a time when they were mean-spirited or unkind to someone. I'm sure that was a long essay. Others were asked to write about a routine event in their lives, and then they were asked to put their hand in a bucket of water and keep it in there as long as possible. Some of the buckets were filled with agonizing ice-cold water, while others were filled with warm water. They were then asked to reflect on the pain and if they experienced any feelings of guilt. Researchers found that those that were feeling guilty of an unkind act inflicted upon themselves more pain. That is, they kept their hand longer in the agonizing ice water. The guilty ones reported that after doing so, their guilt was somehow alleviated. They said that so when we're feeling bad about immoral acts that we commit, experiencing pain makes us feel like we have rebalanced the scales of justice. We associate pain and punishment with justice and guilt. Isn't that interesting? How many have maybe done that? Maybe you, you did something and then later on you whacked your head on a door or hit your, slammed your hand in a car and you said, I had that coming. And you actually maybe felt like you alleviated some of that. Like, I, I paid for my sin. Folks, Jesus did not stick his hand in ice water, did he? And it's absolutely amazing that we can begin to think that of everything that we've done in our lives, that by just having a few painful moments in our life, we can actually cure ourselves from the guilt of our sin. There are two things that stand out in this passage. One of them is the depth of our sin, the heinousness of our sin. How, how dark and how deep and how rebellious and how hateful our sin is. But the other thing that stands out is how deep the love and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ went. Jesus needed to be a perfect human. He needed to be 100% man because man is the one who has done what? Sinned against God. If Jesus was not 100% human in every way except sin, this sacrifice means absolutely nothing. He needed to be made fully human in every way like us except without sin so that he can bear our sin and bear the penalty that our sin deserved. What is happening to Jesus deserves to be happening. It it should be happening to us. It should have been happening to Barabbas, but it's not. It's happening to him. Jesus was not some sort of superhuman 
And it's funny, a lot of the superhero movies that we see today, a lot of them, they get wounded and automatically what happens? They heal, don't they? Those wounds don't stay there and that's how they save people. Guess what? Jesus had those wounds inflicted upon him and they remained. They remained until his death. That's how Jesus, that's how God saves people. And what he is going through Suffering through the guilt of our punishment is on our behalf so that you and I can stand whole, guiltless before God. There is no forgiveness apart from the shedding of blood, and Jesus shed a lot of it. Matthew and Mark actually place this beating after the verdict, and John places it before, and some say there were actually two different scourgings, but I don't believe that's the case. I think that John just adds in more discussion that we don't see in the other accounts because of everything else that is associated with this scourging, which is the crown and the robe, the staff and the mocking. I wanted to go, I just want to go over, because this is how it was possible. Number one, Jesus had to be a perfect man. Jesus had to not sin at all. And Jesus, therefore, had to take our place of what our sins deserved. And this is exactly what it looked like. An author talks about and describes what is just, it's just a small verse, isn't it? Pilate took him and scourged him. Now, the, the readers of John's day would understand everything that was entailed in that scourging. And, and, and we, cannot, we cannot just glance over it. Because it's in this event in which our salvation is, is actually it's purchased. First of all, Jesus would have been stripped of his clothing. Jesus would have been completely naked. We're going to talk more about that in a second. His hands would have been tied to a post above his head so that his flesh, the flesh of his shoulders and his back are stretched to the absolute limit. At this point, the lashes would begin. There was an ancient law that said that, that is, Jewish law said prohibited more than 40 lashes. However, this author doubts that these guys followed any attempt to, to uh, made any attempt to follow that law. It's quite possible that he received more than 40 lashes. A Roman legionnaire would step forward with a cat of nine tails. It might look something like that. And the whip contains nine leather thongs. Each of those thongs has small lead balls that were embedded with bits of glass, stone, or bone that were attached near the ends. The whip is brought down with full force again and again 
and again and again. At first, the the thongs cut through the skin. But then it goes much deeper. At some times, even organs and bones were visible. This is in preparation for His crucifixion. If that's not enough, a crown of thorns was then placed on His head. Is it just circumstance? Or do the thorns go all the way back to the garden, representing the curse and the fall of man, in whom this perfect man is now taking the place for? They mock him and they call him king, which he was. But this king trades his heavenly crown for this one. These weren't thorns from a thorn bush. Most likely they were from the date palm whose spikes were very thick and very hard, growing up to 12 inches long in some cases. The thorns of the date palm are known to possess toxins that cause excruciating pain inflammation, bruising, and tissue damage. And do you think that they just gently placed this upon his head? Absolutely not. They made sure it would stick. He's then is giving a robe which will probably be torn which will be torn off later on. And we all know what it's like to put on clothes on an open wound and then rip it off. They give him a, they hail him, and they give him slaps in the face. We know in other accounts they spat upon him, they're mocking him. What are they doing to him? They are shaming him, aren't they? There's another important concept that we see in our salvation. Not only does he bear our guilt, he bears all of our shame that goes along with it. Guy talks about the the shaming of Jesus Christ, and he says that we often have in our heads an inner lawyer or an inner grandma. The inner lawyer is all about right and wrong, innocence and guilt. The inner grandma is all about appearance and shaming and what appears to be right or, or those things that we do wrong and, and what people are going to what think about us. Jesus took all of that on our behalf. As a matter of fact, Jesus took our shame so that you and I can one day be honored before God Almighty. He was mocked. He was jeered. He was insulted. He was ridiculed by the very people that He created. As he enters into our guilt, we enter into his reward. Pilate then says a phrase that has gone down in history. 
behold the man. And it's as if God is putting him forth, not just for the crowds to see, but for you and I to see today. Behold my perfect man. This is what mankind should have been, but wasn't. And we know that in the book of Isaiah, that his appearance was marred more beyond any human likeness. So he was the perfect man, but he didn't look like it, did he? Look at him. See what he's done on your behalf. It was not the ropes that held him there. It was not the whip that made him bleed. It was our sin. Everything that has happened to Jesus Christ is for us and in our place. And if we ever think that there is anything we can do to wash away our own sin, please remember this. He did it all. He bore all your guilt, all your shame, all your punishment. So that we can have salvation, so that we can be honored, and so that God can call us righteous. It is one of the most freeing truths of our salvation. Other systems of religion are all about making you pay for your guilt, all about making you feel guilty, all about shaming you. Jesus Christ says, I free you from all of that if you've trusted in me. No guilt, no shame, no punishment, no penalty. And that's only half of it, isn't it? The second factor that we see here is not only did Jesus need to be perfectly human to bear our sin and shame and guilt, he needed to be perfectly God so he can satisfy his wrath. Verses 6 through 7. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. Two phrases. I just thought this was really interesting how, how John set this up, and I hope I'm right with my interpretation or else this sermon is not correct. So, But the way he sets it up is the three times it's mentioned, he, no guilt in him, no guilt in him, no guilt in him. And, and two of those times, there is a declaration or a title that is then given to Jesus Christ. The first time, it is man, right? It is anthropos, it is son of man. And the second time, it is son of God. So here, we have the two aspects of Jesus, who Jesus was, fully man and fully God, where now you and I, because of what he's done, can declare that if we're in him, 
we are 100% righteous because he needed to bear our sin, he needed to take our place, but he needed to satisfy the wrath of God. And a finite being, someone like you and I, cannot do that because we have offended an eternal, infinite God. And this is where people don't understand the concept of eternal punishment. The reason why there is eternal punishment, if we don't take his sacrifice, if we don't believe in him, is because we have offended God who is an infinite, eternal being. God is the ultimate judge, and therefore God needs to deem what sacrifice will appease his wrath. Therefore, he can be both just and the justifier. We need a God of vengeance. We need a God of justice. We need a God of wrath. Because if we don't have that, then everything that is happening in this world is just going to keep on going without any repercussions. How is that possible? And it is God's wrath that Jesus satisfies on our behalf because Jesus is God. He needed to represent both parties. It is absolutely essential that we see that. But it's also essential to see the truth behind it, right? What does that mean? That means if we're in Christ, I'm not going to suffer that wrath. That's not mine. That was his. He took it. 100%. Two thousand and thirteen, the wrath of God became a news item. Here's what happened. There was a Presbyterian church, PC USA, and they they were creating a new hymn book. So they were adding all these hymns to their new hymn book. And they wanted and they really liked the hymn, In Christ Alone. So they wanted to add that hymn to their hymn book. However, there was a condition. There was a phrase that needed to be taken out, and it was this one. The wrath of God was satisfied. As a matter of fact, one of the... One of the PCUSA guys actually said, the cross is not an instrument of God's wrath. Well, if it's not, then you and I are all in trouble. They wanted to replace it with, instead of the wrath of God was satisfied, what's a word you would replace it with? Anyone, just shout out, shout out a word. The, let's go with love. Does love sound good? How about the love of God was magnified? That's what they wanted to change it to. What do you think, what do you think, the Gettys said, oh yeah, sure, I'll go right ahead. That's just a minor phrase. That's not really important. No, they said, absolutely not. You cannot take that out because if you take that out, we're not singing about anything, folks, are we? If you take that out, I stand here today guilty as sin. The 
The response of the Gettys needs to be the response of all of us. This is something to sing about. As a matter of fact, of all people, Russell Moore followed the controversy and wrote an article in which he said this, I'm hardly one to tell the Presbyterians what they ought to have in their hymnals, but the gospel is good news for Christians because it tells us of a God of both love and justice. It ought to prompt us to see ourselves as recipients of mercy and as those who will one day give an account. If that's true, let's sing about it. Right? We can't ignore God's wrath. We can't take it out of our hymnals. Jesus needed to be both God and man so that man can be reconciled to God. You and I cannot bear the weight or fully satisfy God's wrath because I am, we are not infinite in nature. I look at a, I look at a passage like this. We, we could probably sit here for hours upon hours trying to unpack the nature of what Christ did for us. One of the conclusions that I constantly come back to is that I fully don't understand it. One of the conclusions that I come back to when I see what he went through on our behalf, when I see that in, in the garden, the one thing that he's praying for him to, to pass is what? The cup. What is the cup? It's the cup of wrath. He does not want to be separated from his father. He doesn't want his father to turn his back on him. I have no idea of how holy God is. I have no idea. I don't think any of us do. And, and we tend to accuse him. We tend to judge him. We tend to get mad at him. But here we are, 2023, and we're, we're living our lives every day. The sun's coming out. The birds are chirping. Yes, there's pain. Yes, there's suffering. But has he judged us like we judge him? No. Not in the least bit. Where was his wrath poured out? It's poured out on his son, not on us. And if we're not in his son, then it is justly deserved. And it is a truth that Christians cannot be ashamed of. It's a truth that, that we need to proclaim and it's a truth that we need to celebrate. Yes, it's awful what happened to Jesus Christ, but I am thankful that he did it. If he's not God then he cannot secure for us eternal salvation. He, if he's not God, he cannot bear the penalty of breaking God's law. Removing that truth removes our hope and our comfort. We often have a very negative view of God, but a very positive view of man. I don't see that here, do you? We often view God as just waiting to get us. 
always angry with us. Guy tells a story about his high school basketball coach. He said he was a classic old school screamer who motivated by fear and shame. His voice was powerful, but I heard it only when I did something wrong. If I turned the ball over on offense or blew my assignment on defense, practice would stop and the shaming would begin. Red in the cheeks and foaming at the mouth, he would scream until I had to wipe the spit off the side of my face. I never really knew him outside of basketball practice, but I know he was an angry man. He says, many people have a similar view of God. They believe he's some angry, grumpy old man who has to get his way, and that when he doesn't, he will shame us, he will guilt us and scare us to get us in line. Although most of us wouldn't say it out loud, deep down even many believers think that God is the one who is out to get me. Waiting, just waiting for us to mess up so he can punish us for our sins. Now God by no stretch of the imagination is angry like this man, but I will tell you that his anger was poured out. Not on us, but on his son. So that you and I will never experience the wrath that is due to our guilt. He will not shame us. He will not punish us. He loves us and he sent Christ for that purpose. Who's pouring out their anger on who here? Crucify him. Crucify him. Looks more like man's pouring out their anger at God. And God in turn is pouring out his anger on his son. We are the ones screaming for blood. We are the ones who did this to him. We are the ones who broke the law. We are the ones who drove nails into the hands of our Creator. We're the angry ones. We're the ones who wanted justice. He was the one who did it all on our behalf. Is God out to get you? Or is man out to get God? Behold the man. Behold your God. He did this so that you could be set free. You and I, like Barabbas, stand condemned. Question is, what are you going to do with your guilt? What are you going to do with your sin? How do you deal with it on a day-to-day basis? Guy tells a story about early on in his ministry. He said, 
I counseled a woman who for some 20 years before had been unfaithful to her husband. For years, that sin had haunted her. He said he was the first person that she ever told about it. He said, after we talked and prayed for a long time, he said, I recommended that she tell her husband the truth. It wasn't easy for her, but she promised that she would. She said, Pastor, I trust you enough to do what you ask, but if my marriage falls apart, I blame you. And she wasn't smiling when she said that. He said, I saw her the very next day, and she looked 15 years younger. What happened? I asked. She said, when I told him, he replied that he had known about the incident for 20 years. He was just waiting for me to tell him so that he could tell me how much he loved me. She started to laugh and she said, he forgave me 20 years ago. I've been needlessly carrying all this guilt for all those years. Folks, don't carry that guilt anymore. Jesus bore it for you. As a matter of fact, that forgiveness took place over 2,000 years ago. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Lord, you alone know our guilt and our shame. And Lord, you are... You alone are the only one who took care of that on our behalf. Lord, all I know is that we will be eternally praising you for this truth. I pray for each of us here today. If we're suffering from guilt and shame, that we turn that over to you, that we turn that over to Jesus Christ who bore it on our behalf, and that we know that you do not frown upon us, but smile upon us and love us because we are in your Son. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.